If you have your Bibles today, would you take them and turn to Psalm 58? Psalm 58. It's printed for you in the bulletin, but I'd encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to open them as well today and to read this along with us. Some of you may have read Psalm 58 this week in preparation for worship today, and if you did, I am glad. And I wonder what your response was upon reading it. It's, it's a difficult psalm. As we go through it, there will no doubt be some parts of this psalm that are a little bit troubling, perhaps some that are a little bit confusing. This is a psalm that is typically classified as an imprecatory psalm. It's almost a scary word, but all it means is that this is one of those psalms in the Bible in which the psalmist, in this case David, prays curses on his enemies. And, and we see why that is, is troubling and distressing for us. But I, I think it would be easier and, and more helpful for us if we understood that this is actually a psalm of lament. That's the proper category to understand this. It's a psalm of lament. A few weeks ago we were in Psalm 13, which was also a psalm of lament, and David was pouring out his sorrows and his troubles before the Lord. And, and we might say Psalm 13 is an individual lament. It was David and his own troubles in his life, whether it was sickness or sadness or persecution or depression or whatever it was. Uh, he was pouring out his individual troubles before the Lord. Psalm 58 is a communal lament. It's a communal lament where David is praying to the Lord and he's pouring out his troubles before him, not only his own personal troubles, but on behalf of the whole community. He's praying here as the representative of all of God's people, all of Israel, saying, we, the people of the Lord, are oppressed and are suffering. And he pours those concerns out to the Lord. He laments before God and asks God to help. Ask God to intervene. Ask God to step in and to do something on behalf of God's people because God's people are suffering. And so he cries to the Lord and prays to him, Lord, will you do something about this situation? It's beyond our ability to do something. Will you step in and help? So I want to read this and then try to paint a picture for us today of why it is possible for us to delight even, not only understand and put up with, but even to delight in a psalm such as this. So let me ask if you're able, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's holy and inerrant word today? This is Psalm 58, the word of God. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs your hearts deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or the cunning enchanter. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is your word, which is useful for teaching, rebuking, 
correcting and training in righteousness because it's been inspired by your spirit, expired, breathed out from your mouth, given to us, your church, that we might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We pray that you will open our eyes, that you will help us to receive this word humbly, to store it up in our hearts, and to practice it in our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. I want to start today by saying a few words to our children and our young people who are here today. I decided early this week that if I could try to explain a psalm like this to the kids, then I could probably try to explain it to anybody. So let me try, for the sake of our kids, to tell you what this psalm is really about. Kids, I wonder if you've ever had that experience where you've been playing a game of some sort, and someone else who's playing the game with you tries to cheat, or tries to break one of the rules, or do something that's wrong, and you immediately think in your mind, and maybe you cry out, Hey, that's not fair. I wonder if anyone has ever heard that ex- exclamation, that that's not fair. I, I hear it fairly regularly. What if maybe you go out to ice cream with some friends and your brothers and sisters and, and you all go through the line and, and it turns out that maybe your sister gets the biggest ice cream cone that's four scoops high and everyone else just gets one scoop. What would you say? You'd look at them and say, hey, that's not fair. Or maybe there's a new toy in the house and everybody wants to play with it. And so you decide, well, we're going to have to take turns. But maybe your brother gets a 20-minute turn. They get all this time to play with the toy and then you have it for, for just two minutes and someone takes it away from you and you say, hey, that's not fair. And so what do we do in life when something happens that doesn't strike us as being fair? What do we do? Well, if you're like certain people I know, you go and you cry out to your father. You say, Dad, look at what has happened. This is not fair. Look at what's going on. And you cry out for them to do something and to intervene. And and what if your father didn't do anything? Then what would you do? You'd go to mom. You'd say, Mom, this is not fair. You'd cry out for somebody. Maybe you'd go to your teacher. Maybe you'd go to your coach, depending on where it is and what's happening. But you'd cry out for somebody to intervene and you'd cry out for justice to be done because there is no justice. And you know what? The truth is that adults do this just as much. It's not just when you're a kid, but adults cry out for justice all the time. Even this week, if you watched your late local news, you would have seen plenty of instances of this. Last week we saw that there was a certain owner of a certain sporting team in a certain city who declared that he treated people differently depending on the color of their skin. And everybody all around the country cried out, hey, that's not fair. From big national events like this all the way down to just small things. Miss Misty told the story this week of going to McDonald's and, and there was a kid in front of her who ordered his lunch and he paid for it and then they didn't give him his food. And you have to cry out, this is not fair. Why is the world filled with injustice? Everywhere we look, everything we do, it seems the world is just overrun with unjust people doing unjust things And so we cry out. And when we read Psalm 58, that's exactly what's happening. David is crying out to the Lord, God, there is injustice here. Things are not fair. And so he's crying to God, Lord, will you intervene? Will you do something? Will you say something? Will you make those people behave? He's crying out to the Lord in a prayer 
to intervene. And you know what happens when we get to the end of the psalm? When we get to the last verse, he says, Mankind will say, it is everybody, everyone's going to see what God does, and they'll say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. In other words, he wants God to intervene and to make his justice known because he wants everyone to see and to know that that's who God is. God is a God of perfect justice. He's a God who does intervene and who does reward the righteous. He does reward those who come to him and who follow him and who trust in him and who believe in him. He rewards those people. And everyone will see that he rewards the faithful and they'll say, yes, there is a God. The world will know. The world will know on that day that there is a God who judges on earth. And so that's what this psalm is. This is David's cry to the Lord to intervene, to show his justice. I want to walk us through this psalm now in three parts. The first part, verses 1 through 5, shows us a picture of these wicked people. The second part, verses 6 through 9, is David's prayer for justice to be done. And then the last two verses is the result of justice. So first, the picture of the unjust, the prayer for justice, and the result of justice. So first, these first five verses, David describes here in this psalm this picture of what the unjust are like. Now, we recognize that this is a psalm of David. The title tells us that. This is one that that David has written, and it doesn't tell us exactly what the situation or the specific context is in David's life was. We don't know exactly what was happening in David's life that caused him to write a psalm like this, but we do have some hints and we can make an educated guess. This section of the psalms here, this, this late 50s, contains a lot of psalms that David writes in that earlier period of his life when he's on the run from King Saul. If you look at Psalm 57, if you have your Bible open, in the title of Psalm 57, it says, A Miktam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. So we know the context of that one. Saul is after him to kill him and David's on the run. Psalm 59, right after it, it also says a miktam of David when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. So we don't know, but we can make an educated guess that Psalm 58 is from this same time period. Saul is after him. David's on the run. That is, the king of Israel is trying to kill David. Why? Because David is more righteous than he is. Because he's more blessed by God than Saul is. And if you remember, what, what is David's life like at this time? We remember the story from 1 Samuel. Saul has already been rejected from being king over Israel. Right? That was 1 Samuel 15. He's disobedient to the Lord. He does not wait for Samuel, so the Lord rejects Saul. And in the next chapter, Samuel, the prophet, anoints David as king of Israel. And then we have this weird, weird section where David, here he's anointed as king of Israel, but he's not yet reigning as king of Israel. He's not on the throne yet. Saul is still reigning as king, even though David is anointed as the proper king. And and it's in this time frame that David, even though he's the king, Saul is after him. Saul hates him. Saul is getting jealous of him. You know, they sing, uh, Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands, and that makes Saul angry, and he's trying to kill David. And how does David respond? David responds very humbly. He doesn't retaliate. He even has an opportunity to kill Saul, And that surprise attack, and what does he do? He says, far be it from me that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. No, the Lord's anointed is trying to kill him. He does not retaliate. He does not take vengeance into his own hands and and try to enforce his own brand of justice. He says, I leave that to the Lord. So he's not retaliating against Saul at this time. David is humble. He's waiting patiently for the Lord. 
even while he is suffering persecution from wicked and unjust rulers. So, so this is the life of David. His attitude is very humble. His actions are very patient. And his prayers are very urgent. His attitude is humble. His actions are patient. And his prayers recorded in the Psalms are very urgent. And, and this is one of the keys to help us understand what, what, what do we do with these Psalms that are difficult like this. Well, we have to understand that these psalms are not a record of David taking justice into his own hands. This is not a record of what David does. David does not go out and break the teeth of the wicked. According to verse 6, he's, he's not doing that. These are prayers to God to ask God to do the exact thing that God has promised that he will do, which is to be just and to show himself a just and fair God. David is not retaliating, he's praying. And we see all throughout the Bible that that is what we are instructed to do. Old Testament and New Testament, the ethic is the same as it says in Romans twelve nineteen. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, now quoting from the Old Testament, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And that is exactly what David is doing in Psalm 58. He is not taking vengeance into his own hands. He's not retaliating himself. He's leaving it to the Lord. He's putting it out there. He's praying to the Lord and he's saying, Lord, I leave this to you you act. You repay because it's your right to repay evil men. He's not retaliating himself. That would be wrong. He's praying and leaving it to the Lord's wrath. So look at verse 1, how he begins his description here. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? So here he's pouring out his sorrows to the Lord and he begins with this description in the form of an accusation against those who are the rulers of Israel. Those who are in the position of authority, he, he does this to accuse them, to describe what the problem is, and immediately, in verse 1, we actually run into a translation difficulty because some of you might have a different word where it says, do you indeed decree what is right, you gods, as it says in the ESV. Now, the word there in Hebrew, the word elem, is actually the word silence. But translators have always been a little troubled by that and thought, well, that doesn't really fit. So you have this word Elam, and they thought maybe that's just a, an abbreviation for Elohim. You'd only need to add one more letter, and it's the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet, just a little tiny yod, and you have Elohim. So they say, instead of silence, what if it said gods? Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods, rather than do you indeed decree what is right in silence? But I think that the first translation, what is actually written in the Hebrew where it says silence, is very instructive. He's saying, do you decree what is right, you silent ones? You who are not raising your voice, you who are not speaking out against injustice, here you are, you are the rulers and the authorities, the kings and governors over Israel. Injustice is taking place on your watch and you remain silent. He reminds us here that to be silent in the face of injustice is just as bad as to perpetrate injustice yourself. James Boyce says the same thing, to remain silent in the face of evil is itself an injustice. Albert Einstein, or someone, he's the one who often gets credit for the quote, he says, the world is a dangerous place not because of men who do evil, but because of those who see evil be done and say nothing. So to be silent in the face of evil, to be silent in the face of injustice is itself an injustice. As we say, justice delayed is justice denied, to do nothing in the face of it. So for our children, we imagine if if something unfair happens and you go to dad and say, dad, this isn't fair, do something. 
And your dad just leans back with his paper and he doesn't do anything about it. What do you do? You're frustrated. You say, Mom, you go to Mom and you try to appeal to that higher authority who can do something about it. That's what David is doing here. David is saying it's the rulers and governors who who aren't doing anything. They're not acting in the face of oppression. And so he's just going to pull rank and go straight to God. He's going to cry out now to the Lord and ask the Lord for justice. In Isaiah 59, a great prayer here and a great word from the Lord. In Isaiah 59, 15, he says, Isaiah the prophet says, The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. And then verse 16, he saw that there was no man, wondered that there was no one to intercede. And so his own arm brought him salvation. In other words, the Lord is looking on an injustice and it says, the Lord wondered, why is there no man who's interceding here? Why is no one taking up this cause in prayer? Why are God's faithful people not seeing evil and injustice? Why are they not crying out to God, praying to him, Lord, intervene? God's up there saying, why are the faithful not doing anything? This is a word to us Whether or not we're in a position of authority, this is a word to us to do what we can in the face of injustice. To pray, to put it before the Lord and to ask God to be faithful and to make his justice known. David here, he's living in this society where the rulers and the authorities rule according to political expediency and not according to godliness and faithfulness, not according to what is right, fair, or just. And perhaps we think, well, we can relate to a situation like that And yet the first place that we would look based on this psalm, the first application would be to look in the church. Because David is writing about God's people. For him, Israel was God's people. And so we say, this is to look in the church to ask ourselves, do we have godly leadership? Does our leadership do what is right? Do we have leadership that rules based on what is faithful, godly, just, and fair? Jack Collins suggests that this is a psalm that can be taken up by God's people when they want to lament the fact that godly leadership is lacking in the church, in Christian ministries as a whole. So we use this because that's what David's lament was, that there was no godly leadership for the people of God. And so we also experience injustice. That's the real sting of this psalm, that he's not just lamenting that unbelievers are unjust. He's looking at the people of God and saying, even among God's people, it seems like justice is not being carried out. It seems like fairness is not ruling the day. Of God's people who ought to know better, they don't do any better. And these questions that he poses in verse 1 are answered in verse 2. He says, no. No, in your hearts you devise wrongs, your hands deal out violence on earth. Their hearts devise it and their hands carry it out. The classic biblical connection between what's in our heart and what's in our hands that our hearts devise wrong our hands carry it out and we see the depth of the problem here that that this evil that david is praying against we recognize that it's not just incidental kind of happenstance evil or wrongs he's saying these are people who are premeditating calculating the evil in their hearts as they devise it in their hearts this is premeditated injustice that they plan out and then it says their hands carry out these injustices and wrongs that they're planning ahead of time. So again, this, this helps us to understand what to do with a psalm like this. David's not just reeling out imprecations against the first person who cuts him off in traffic one day because he's having a bad day. He's saying these people that he takes up prayer against are premeditating how they can destroy the people of God. How they can hurt God's faithful people 
and, and they want to destroy them. And so this is a prayer we can take up for the persecuted church. For, for when Christians around the world are suffering and are persecuted, we can take up psalms like this that are in the scripture for us to use to cry out to God for justice on their behalf. When they suffer at the hands of those who in their hearts devise wrongs and their hands carry it out. It's not a, not a light thing to pray this way. We recognize that immediately. It's not a light thing, but, but we recognize that he is describing those in this psalm who live as enemies of Christ, who have ill intent in their hearts towards God and are destroying God's people. In verse 3, he, he continues his description saying in verse 3, they have, excuse me, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth. And so the diagnosis of the problem here, David says this problem is theological. It's not just that they have different opinions. It's not just praying against rulers that he disagrees with. He's saying this is a theological issue that these people have gone astray from God, from the womb, ever since birth. And, and so this is the problem. The people who are ruling over God's people don't know God. They're estranged from him. Ever since the womb, they've been estranged. They're not living by God's word. They're not submitting to God's ways. They're not loving God's law. They don't know God at all. And can you imagine then what happens in a society when, when people like that get in the positions of authority? What, what happens? I mean, how does stuff go in that society? David describes it in verses 4 and 5. Listen to this description. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear so it does not hear the voice of the charmer or the cunning enchanter. So he gives us this picture. It's like one of these Middle Eastern scenes where you have a snake charmer who's playing his pipe and you've got this dangerous venomous serpent, maybe a cobra, in the middle and the crowd gathers around to watch it and because the, the, the snake charmer is so skillful on his pipe, he's charming this cobra and the cobra just does a safe little dance and no one gets hurt. But now he says, imagine that snake is deaf. He pays no regard to the enchanter. Now you've got a crowd of people with a cobra in their midst who, who's totally wild. And he's got venom in his fangs and he's just spewing venom everywhere, attacking at random, hurting and killing people. He says that's what it's like when you get ungodly leaders in a position of authority over God's people. It's like you've just set a cobra in the midst of a crowd and there's no control over him. He's just hurting and killing people all around him. But at the same time, we recognize as we read a psalm like this that David is not merely giving us a portrait to look at a picture of other people, but he's giving us a mirror. That God's word is always in all of its parts a mirror for our soul in which we look at it and we read God's word and we say, ah, this is not meant to help me accuse others, but for God's word to help accuse me and my own heart when I need it. Even when we read that they're sinful from birth, estranged from their womb, we, we remember David's description of himself in Psalm 51. Surely in sin did my mother conceive me. David says his situation would not be that different except that the grace of God has intervened and redeemed his heart. He would say, there but for the grace of God go I. Say so we all start out in this same position until we submit to Christ, until we lay our lives humbly before him. And so all of us must ask, are we opening or closing our ears to hear God's word? Is our ear deaf to the word of God? Are we able to hear it, to bring it in, to store it up in our hearts? Are we able to humbly receive it, even when it's difficult? Are we able to learn it obediently, submit to it? Are our mouths spewing venom? 
In the book of James, it says, who can tame the tongue? This is an advanced sign of our sanctification to be able to tame our tongue and to use our words wisely for edification rather than for tearing it down. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, the line between good and evil does not run between us and them, but it runs down the middle of every human heart. And so even in this psalm, we're encouraged to take these words to heart for ourselves and to say, is this a description of me? Would this prayer be prayed against me if, if I were in that position, or is my heart open to hear the word of God? This is David's picture then of the, the wicked, unjust rulers in Israel. And in verses 6 through 9 now, he prays. He addresses himself to God, not merely describing the situation, but now pleading for God's help in verses 6 through 9, asking God to intervene and to enforce justice. Now, this is where the words of the psalm tend to make us uncomfortable. The language is very stark. There is no doubt. The language is strong. The sentiment almost strikes us. Is this even worthy of being in the Bible? It's so strong. But uh, I'd like to show us that, that, yes, this is exactly consistent with the scriptures. I remember my first summer as a pastoral intern, the summer of 2002. I was working at a church in western Colorado, and part of my job description was to help plan a worship service to help pick the scriptures that we would use. And I remember trying to flip through the book of Psalms, picking out a good psalm to use as a call to worship. And so, of course, I wanted to find a good, encouraging psalm, something that would make us, you know, start off the service making us feel good, something about God's love or his faithfulness or his, his grace or his mercy. And so I'm flipping through the psalms, and, and every time I would look at one, it seemed to start out good enough. And then right in the middle, there would be some kind of wild imprecation. I said, well, I can't use that one. Imprecations are found in 30 of the Psalms. We recognize that, that even some of our most favorite Psalms, Psalm 139, of course, you'd think this would be a perfect Psalm. Oh, Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I rise and when I lay down. You know my thoughts from afar. He says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I am awake. I am still with you. I think, ah, this beautiful, perfect psalm for use in the church. And what's the very next verse? Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. And all the warm fuzzies are suddenly all gone. And you think, well, I can't use this one anymore. It just, it just ruins it. And we recognize that it's not just in the psalms. You read through the prophets. And it's all throughout the prophets. The prophets are complaining to God and crying out for justice. Habakkuk's cry to the Lord says, Lord, you yourself are of purer eyes than to look on evil. How can you tolerate wrong? Why are you silent when wicked men swallow up those more righteous than themselves? What is he crying? He's crying, Lord, this is not fair. All throughout the historical sections of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch and the historical books, we read stories of God's justice and his judgment. I'm struck Every time I, I read our children's storybook Bible with Judah and Naomi, we read the story of the Exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea, and we get to the end and it's this glorious finish with God's people standing on the far side of the Red Sea celebrating that God has won the victory, that he's delivered them from the enemy of Egypt, even when they were pursuing them. And, and yet there in the children's Bible on the left-hand page is a picture of the Red Sea, and there's chariot wheels and horses' legs sticking up out of it. And I remember reading it, and Judah said, what are these paws sticking out of the water? <laughs> and well, you know, we forget that in the midst of that great deliverance, God executed deliverance by killing 
thousands, maybe millions of people, and they drowned in the midst of the Red Sea. God's justice being enforced, his judgment on the enemies. And so even in the kids' Bible, we lose our warm fuzzies fairly quickly. But all throughout the Bible, God glorifies himself by saving his people, by judging the enemy. Those three things happen all the time. God glorifies himself by saving his people, by judging the enemy. Even in the New Testament, we would recognize that there are still many imprecations. Jesus himself in Psalm 23, uh, Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Some of his language is very strong. Remember in Galatians 1, what does Paul say? Cursed be anyone who preaches any other gospel than the one I have proclaimed. An even stronger curse in the end of Corinthians, cursed be anyone who does not love the Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament has its own set of imprecations, these curses that are on people who are not faithful to the Lord. And that is the cry of Psalm 58. Lord, will you do this again? Will you glorify yourself by saving your people, by judging your enemies? Look at verse 6. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Now, as we read this in context, it helps us to understand why he's using the language he does. Because he's already described the unjust rulers as being venomous serpents that that are totally out of control, that have venom in their fangs and are just hurting and killing and spewing venom. And now he's saying, Lord, break those teeth. See, he's praying to the Lord here, asking the Lord that, that God will take away the capacity of the wicked to hurt and to kill. Take away the capacity of the wicked to hurt and to kill. Being snakes, it's their teeth that are so dangerous. It's their teeth that can harm and can hurt you. And likewise with young lions. We have this picture here of lions who are young, who are just now sort of discovering the power that they have in their jaws. This ability that they as lions have to tear things to shreds and to destroy them. And yet they're young. They haven't learned to to use that wisely. They haven't learned to tame that ability and use it for hunting and not for killing randomly. It's it's young lions who just kill with their fangs. And, And he's saying here, God, will you take away the ability of the wicked people to hurt and to destroy? What we have is he's living in this situation where wicked rulers are just hurting people. They're destroying God's people. And David says, Lord, take away their ability to hurt. It's like he says in the end of verse 7, he says, when he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. When he aims his arrows, Lord, make it of no account. Let nothing happen with those arrows. Let them be blunt so they don't hurt people, so they don't destroy people. Remember last week, we were in Psalm 45, this ode of praise to the king. And one of the lines was, let the king's arrows be sharp in the hearts of his enemies. He praises the king, saying, Lord, I want your arrows to be sharp. Why? Because God rides out for truth and meekness and righteousness. So so here we have a firm foundation. Here we have a ruler we can trust. But in this psalm, the rulers are wicked and unjust and unfair. He says, Lord, let their arrows be totally blunt. Because they just aim indiscriminately. They're hurting the good guy. Let them not do the damage that they're trying to do. So the first request he makes in this this vivid language of breaking teeth, the first request is this, Lord, just take away the ability of wicked people to hurt God's people. And then the second request is, is this, Lord, may these wicked ones have no lasting effects. May they have no legacy on the earth. Just remove them from society so completely that there is no effect of them 
that, that what they have tried to accomplish is of no account. And so he says in the beginning of verse 7, let them vanish like water that runs away. I mean, we know how that is here in a, a hot, dry climate. It, it can rain for 15 minutes, and you look outside five minutes later, and the street's totally dry. I mean, water just evaporates so quickly here. And that's what he's saying. Lord, may it, they be of no account whatsoever. May all of their plans be ruined and come to nothing. May they have no legacy on earth. May 10 minutes from now we not even remember that they were here. Verse 8 is the same thing. May their plans come to ruin. And the, the language again of verse 8 is so vivid. Let them be like a snail that dissolves into slime. Like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Think of that image. Think of that image. Think of the parents who plan and plan and plan for months and months and months. And then it's all for naught. It's a horrible image, but David says, let the wicked be like that. They are devising in their hearts all of this wrong, all of this wicked against God and against his people. Lord, may it just be nothing. May it, may it be totally frustrated. May their plans not have any lasting effects. As he says in verse 9, God just sweep them away. Sweep them away sooner than your pots even feel the heat of the thorns that are beneath them. Even if those thorns are dry, before their heat gets to the pot, may God sweep them away. There be no lasting effects, no legacy of the evil that they are trying to perpetrate. As we think about these specific prayers, that God would take away the power of evil to harm his people, and that evil would be left with no legacy, we, we recognize those two prayers are fulfilled perfectly in Christ, are they not? Those two prayers that Christ would take away the power of evil to hurt us and that evil would eventually have no legacy left are perfectly fulfilled in Christ at the accomplishment of the cross. Think of Colossians 2.15. Paul says, Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. He disarmed them. He took away their power to hurt us. He broke the teeth in their mouth, putting them to open shame so that they no longer have the ability to do harm to God's people. Evil has been disarmed. That's the prayer of Psalm 58. Or think of 1 Corinthians 15. O grave, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? It has no sting. Because of the work of Christ, he has disarmed those authorities. He has taken away the power of death to hurt God's people. Death is the last enemy. And Christ, through his work at the cross, has totally taken away its power. He's taken away its sting. He's taken away the fangs filled with venom that it has to kill us. Death, where is your sting? It has none. Christ has fulfilled the prayer of this psalm, taking away all of the power of death and the grave to hurt God's people. The enemy no longer has any power over us. What Jesus accomplished at his first coming is exactly the prayer of Psalm 58. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He, he made it so they have no power over us. He's taking away their legacy that they will not survive. And we look forward yet to that day at the second coming when he will come again and fulfill all of the rest of this. That he will then pursue perfect justice and take away every last vestige on the earth where injustice still remains. And that's what points us to the last two verses, verses 10 and 11. The results of justice when God intervenes when God answers the prayer on that great day it says the righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance the righteous will rejoice in that day when God is faithful when he answers prayers like the Israelites standing on the shores of the Red Sea singing the Lord is a warrior he rides forth victoriously 
We will praise and we will triumph and we will glory. This picture in verse 10 is it's very reminiscent, in fact, of the end of Revelation. The righteous rejoicing when they see God's victory, and it says he will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. This is battlefield imagery. Battlefield imagery of a victorious warrior. It's the description of Christ in Revelation 19, that he rides forth on a white horse of battle. He's wearing a robe that's dipped in blood, and it says he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. His feet bathed in the blood of his enemies because he will win the victory. And the glory of the justice of God will be seen and it will be delighted in. And mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. And I imagine in that day we'll take up the words of Romans 15, 22, behold the kindness and the severity of God. Both of them. Behold the kindness and and the severity of God, kindness to those whom he loves, whom he has chosen, whom he gives his mercy to, severity to those who are unjust and unfaithful. Behold both the kindness, and as Paul meditates on those, and he tries to think, and he tries to wrap his mind around them, what does he say? He comes to the end of himself and says, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, his paths beyond finding out. The ESV says, inscrutable. His ways are inscrutable. Who can search them out? Who can understand them? Who has ever been his counselor? Let me finish with two quick exhortations as to how we can learn to delight in the justice of God, to delight in it. First, it's the justice of God that gives meaning to life. It's the justice of God that gives meaning to life because we live in a world that so often seems chaotic and cruel and and completely unordered, and we suffer injustice big and small regularly, and we wonder, like Asaph in Psalm 73, where is the Lord? Why are the wicked always prevailing and the righteous always suffering? What's going on? Is there any meaning in life? And the justice of God tells us, yes, there is order, there is purpose, there is meaning in life, and it will be revealed, and the righteous will rejoice. Asaph comes to the end of the psalm, he says, I went to the sanctuary, and then I understood. I went into the presence of God. I delighted in his character traits of justice. And then I understood every wrong will be accounted for. The justice of God gives meaning to life. And second, the justice of God, it humbles us and causes us to cherish Christ. Humbles us, makes us cherish Christ. And I think this psalm should be very helpful for us to make us cherish Christ that much more. John Calvin says, speaking about the value of pondering the judgment seat of God. He says, Therefore, if we would make way for the call of Christ, we must put far from us all arrogance and confidence. Never shall we have sufficient confidence in him unless we are utterly distrustful of ourselves. Never shall we take courage in him until we're first despondent of ourselves. Never shall we have full consolation in him until we are pleased to have none in ourselves. Is this a psalm like this? It, it can accuse us and bring us very low, which is good because it helps us to flee to Christ, to cherish Him, to cling to Him, to find all of our goodness, all of our security, and all of our confidence in Christ, the righteous one, the righteous one who will rejoice when His justice is displayed. Let's pray together. Father, today our desire is to humble ourselves before your word, to accept it as it is, the holy and inerrant inspired word of God given to us for our 
good for our edification. And Father, we pray, may we, as your people, ever grow in our ability to delight in all of your perfections, each and every one of them, to find in you all of our comfort and consolation, to cling to the cross of Jesus Christ as our only comfort in life and in death. For we praise him who displays his justice and his mercy in his wisdom and grace, making it known before all the world to see. Father, we pray that you will continue to exalt the name of Jesus Christ among your people, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen.